Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor-in-chief of the network, and each week we scour the Internet looking for interesting books. And this week, I'm very happy to say we have Scott Sowerby on the show, and he's written the book Making Toleration, The Repeaters, and The Glorious Revolution. I should tell you that uh, I really don't know a lot about... um, I never know what to call it. English, British, United Kingdom history. Scott, what what do people call it now? I think we're calling it British now. Okay, we'll call it British. I don't know. I don't want to offend anybody, but I don't know very much about it, so I learned a lot from Scott's book. I had a particular impression of James II. turned out it was totally wrong. That doesn't surprise me. Um, But Scott certainly has a lot lot of new things to say about uh, James and what James was trying to do. So uh, let me say thank you for writing the book, and welcome to the show, Scott. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. All right. So maybe you could begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Thanks, Marshall. So I um, I was born in Canada. I'm Canadian. Well, um, we won't hold that against you. <laughs> all right. Thanks. Okay. Um, so, uh, yes, I'm an interloper in the United States, and uh, I spent the first 21 years of my life living in uh, a city called Coquitlam in British Columbia, which is a suburb of Vancouver. Mm-hmm. Uh, my father uh, was a chartered accountant. Uh, he worked as a chartered accountant. He's now retired. My mother was a high school teacher. And my path into history was a bit of a winding road. So I uh, went to the local university, Simon Fraser University, and um, that was the closest university to where I grew up. And um, Simon Fraser is a very strong engineering program, and that's what I thought I was going to do. Um, and I think I must have switched my major Three times in my freshman year, I started in engineering, then to switch to physics. And for a while, I wanted to do philosophy, but I kept <laughs> dropping my philosophy classes because I couldn't figure out how to write the first paper. So, <laughs> meanwhile, every semester I was taking just one history course, and to you know to be well rounded and give me some background to the philosophy I was intending to do. And I just found myself liking them more and more. Um, I wasn't really thinking of majoring it at the time, but I found all the contact with with primary sources, the original sources from the past, to be incredibly exciting. It's not something I'd done too much of in high school. And I remember saying, I think it was in my sophomore year, that my goal by the time I graduated was to have taken five different courses where I had to read Plato's Republic. (laughs) It's one of them. I think that tells you something about the kind of undergraduate I was. In the end, I ended up doing majors in both English literature and history, and Mm -hmm. I decided when I applied to graduate school that I would try and combine them with early modern English history. I made the big leap um, across the continent uh, from Vancouver to Boston or to Cambridge, Massachusetts, and started graduate study at Harvard. Um, That wasn't an easy transition, but I was fortunate enough to win a large grant from the Canadian government that allowed me to do three entire years of dissertation research in England. I'm not sure I would recommend this to any of my graduate students, but I I loved being over there and diving into the archives, getting my hands dirty with all sorts of original sources. So I finished up my thesis, uh, spent three years teaching at Harvard in the history and literature program, Mm -hmm. and then... Uh, began my current position, which is uh, as an assistant professor at Northwestern University in Evanston, Illinois. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's the Canadian government and those fellowships. I've heard about oh, those yes. things. I've heard about yes. them. Um, we don't have that they're, here. They're true. <laughs> yeah, it's unfortunate. I remember in graduate school, I uh, 
I worked as a as a cook and dishwasher. <laughs> That's the fellowship. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, but it was fun. I mean, I kind of enjoyed it. I didn't have to do it full time or anything like that. So I, I got sure you learned a lot from that. Uh, you know, it was nice. I can still wash dishes. So <laughs> the uh, and I do a lot of it. Uh, tell us why you wrote Making Toleration. Sure. Yeah. So. I think on some level, when we're writing, even about history, we're writing about ourselves, and there certainly was an autobiographical impulse to this book, so let me tell you a little bit more about my background. Um, I was raised with some pretty serious uh, religious commitments of my own. Uh, I was raised in uh, an evangelical Christian family, Mm -hmm. and I want to say to your listeners, I'm sure most of your listeners are American, and that's actually an international audience, but... um, no, in yeah. fact, all of them are evangelical Christians. <laughs> <laughs> so I know we Americans have a certain impression of what it means to be an evangelical Christian. You know, if you're in rural Tennessee, probably it means something very different than if you're in suburban Vancouver. I was pretty much the only evangelical I knew in my school. Um, you know, no one else was evangelical. The vast majority of my classmates were, I you know, agnostic or I can't I can remember. Um, being the only person in my class who would admit to any sort of religious belief whatsoever. So that's <laughs> very different than I think than the American context. And I can remember feeling in the fifth grade that it was my mission to actually convert all the other mm. students in my class. Yeah. So I was trying to convert people on the playground during recess, yeah. which didn't go very well. Yeah. So, so that made me very sensitive to, I think, the experience of religious minorities. I was one myself. And then going through college... Um, I went through a sort of very long and complicated intellectual process, uh, which eventually led to me becoming a la- what you might call lapsed evangelical. Mm-hmm. And that had all sorts of consequences for the way I thought about myself. And so in a sense, I felt like a religious minority twice, first growing up in school and then later in my own family where I was, um, I was the lapsed one. Mm-hmm. So um, I think that all made me very sensitive to the power of religion in people's lives. And when I was at college, when I was at university, I was drawn to courses on religion, and especially because um, having had a very secular education in Canada, religion just wasn't discussed at school growing up. I mean, and the idea that you could study it in a scholarly way really excited me, so I took a lot of courses actually on the Islamic Middle East. I don't know Arabic, otherwise I might have ended up as, (laughs) as an Islamic historian, and the Reformation in Germany, and then I sort of stumbled into early modern England, in part because of the importance of religion to that. Period, and that happened because um, I was very fortunate. I in the summer after my uh, sophomore year, I went to England on a short summer program at the University of Cambridge, and I had the very good fortune of studying with uh, the English Civil War with John Morrill, who is one of the greatest historians of that period. He's at Cambridge, and he takes religion very seriously. And he assigned me a paper on the Quakers, which is a group. I knew almost nothing about it. I don't think I had ever met a Quaker when I wrote that paper. And I was really hooked because they're the ultimate religious minority, at least in 70th century England. They were incredibly radical. They set themselves apart in all sorts of ways, the ways they dressed, the way they talked, the way they behaved. So when I applied to graduate school, I applied to do a thesis on the Quakers. I was going to work on the Quakers actually at the start of the movement in the 1650s under uh, Oliver Cromwell in the interregnum. Uh, and then a visiting professor named Tom Cogswell, who's now at UC Riverside, um, suggested that I should switch to a slightly later period, to the 1680s, and look at the interesting friendships and alliance that developed between the Quakers and James II. Why was it that a Catholic king 
had so many Quaker allies. And that launched me on this study, trying to figure out how this strange, bizarre alliance really could have happened and what it tells us about religion and politics in the 1680s. And then it just broadened out from there as I realized that to understand that, I had to understand what was going on with Catholics and Baptists and Congregationalists and even Anglicans in the period. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So James II, he's sort of at the center of the book. Right. And uh, I, I think that from my limited knowledge, he is the strangest of English monarchs, uh, mm-hmm. primarily because he's Catholic. Mm, uh, yeah. And I guess I, I bet everybody wants to know, and I certainly, and you tell the story in the book, uh, everyone wants to know, how did he become Catholic? I mean, given that the Anglican Church is what it is and the Tess Acts were what they were. Right. How did England come to have a Catholic king? I mean, that, that's, it's, he's the only one that's ever been, right? You know, actually, there's a slight correction to that. What I say is he's the first Catholic to take the throne mm-hmm. after Mary Tudor. Mm-hmm. Okay. But his elder brother, Charles, yeah. Charles II, mm-hmm. actually converted to Catholicism on his deathbed. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah. Wow. So their, their, their mother was Catholic, Henri- mm-hmm. Henrietta Maria, um, Charles I's wife. She was a, a French princess. And they both were in exile in, in, on the continent while Oliver Cromwell was in power in the 1650s. Yep. They spent some time in France. And so all of this could have something to do with it. Um, Charles um, II was perhaps wise not to convert until the very end of his life, which saved him a lot of political yeah. problems. Mm-hmm. Um, James decided to do it um, in the late 1660s. So this is um, after the restoration of 1660 when the monarchy comes back and his brother Charles is on the throne. And um, what he says, and it's hard to know what to, what to make of his own description of his conversion, is that he just asked Anglicans what the reasons for the Reformation were, why it was legitimate to cause this schism and break apart this church. The, the universal holy Catholic church. And um, he was not satisfied with their answers. And he, when the more works of Protestant <laughs> Protestantism they assigned to him, the more dissatisfied he was. He, and he felt there was no legitimate reason for um, the reformation, which kind of suggests his, his adherence to authority. You know, he believed that you should follow authority and he, you should follow his own authority as King. And so, um, the breaking off from the authority of Rome wasn't legitimate in his view, and that's mm-hmm. he converted, and his his wife converted as well, um, Anne Hyde. So right, but these were deeply felt and considered opinions. This was not Paris is worth a mass. No, yeah, no. Well, this was he was not politicking when he was doing this. No, it was the absolute, absolute opposite <laughs> yeah. of politicking. Say what lawyers call a statement against interest. Yes, yeah. London. London was definitely not worth um, a Protestant mass for him. Um, yeah. He never, he never showed any willingness to convert back to Protestantism for the sake of his throne. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Even if he had, I don't know if it would have made a difference, actually. By the time we get to the end of his reign, there is so much um, fear and suspicion about what he's up to that I think a lot of people would have just disregarded the conversion and said it wasn't, it wasn't a real conversion, that mm-hmm. we couldn't, you could, still couldn't trust him. Right. And I guess the reason I mentioned this, and I'm going on and on about it, it is a very good reason to take religion seriously as a motivating force. Right. What he does is inexplicable outside deeply held religious beliefs. Well, yes, to a certain extent. Yeah. I mean, I would say that, you know, I, I wonder sometimes what would have happened if he had remained Anglican. And, yeah, a lot of what he did would be inexplicable, certainly. But, mm-hmm. you know, toleration could make sense to an Anglican monarch. Um, 
because if you can get everyone, you know, this is how a lot of emperors ran their, you know, the Mughal Empire at the time, um, the Ottoman Empire. If you, if it, it strengthens the monarchy, if every different, every different religious group has to uh, rely on you for their guarantees mm-hmm. of religious freedom. So that's one way to run an empire. And in the, in the end, the British Empire does uh, end up running that way. You know, Catholics in Quebec, when they get Quebec, uh, for example, are, are allowed to keep their religion. So you could imagine... And there were people at the time who were who were talking about how toleration could be something that was good for you know the economy, that was um, good for for government as well as. But yes, I, it is hard to imagine without James converting himself. Um, I mean, his brother also um, argued for toleration, but that could also have to do with his inward sympathies that were developing towards Catholicism. Mm-hmm. So, I think it's interesting about the language, and this just occurred to me. I know that it was Locke, right, who wrote an essay on toleration. Is that that's right? That's this? right. Yeah, this word toleration it does not mean acceptance. No, no, it doesn't, and I think we confuse that. So, why did they choose the word toleration? Um, well, toleration, yeah, it's a complicated, very complicated word. Um, you know, in our in our eyes, it, it sort of has a hint of condescension to it. Yeah, it you know, it's yeah, all of it's something yeah. that you you would prefer didn't exist, but you have to put up with it. Um, and you know, they often talked about liberty of conscience rather than toleration. Mm-hmm. Um, that you should be free to um, to follow your own inward leanings because God gives you those inward leanings, and if you're going to get to I mean, a lot of this revolves around salvation. Um, if you're going to get to heaven, do you have to follow your own inward leadings, or do you have to follow the truth, which mm-hmm. is which comes from you know Rome in the case of the Catholics, or you know the inerrant Scripture in the case of of Puritans? Um, so, yeah, toleration is a tricky tricky concept. Yeah, and this notion of inward leadings is interesting. I mean, the discourse of it. And this gets us right back to the Quakers because they follow the I think it's called the inner light. Isn't that's that right? Yeah, the inner yeah. light, yeah. Uh-huh. And they're born in the English Civil War, aren't they? Yes, and well, just after the English Civil War. And what's really fascinating about the Quakers is that they think that anyone can get to heaven if they follow their own inner light. You don't actually have to be a Quaker to get to heaven. Cool. You, know, you can be a Buddhist and get to heaven. Mm-hmm. Um, you can be an American Indian and follow your own native spirituality and you can get to heaven as long as you're following the light that God has given to you, revealing through, revealed through nature and through your own traditions. Um, so even though they think everyone is probably going to end up Quaker in the end, that's what they, what they hope, that the society of friends is just going to grow and grow, they don't think you have to be Quaker. You just have to follow your inner light. Yeah. I was going to say, you said you, you hadn't met any Quakers when you were growing up. You may have, but they are so modest right. that they don't, <laughs> won't even tell you that they're Quakers. <laughs> you know, the very first archive I ever did research on in England was the Quaker archives in London. And when you go into the Quaker archives, you have to write down your name, uh, well, the Library of the Society of Friends. And, um, and you also have to s- tick off a little box about whether you're a friend or not. And I've always wanted to tick yes. <laughs> very <part>. friendly. Yeah. <laughs> They're so friendly and yeah. such kind people. Yeah. And I really do want to be their friend. Yeah. yeah. And no, they're, they're really wonderful. Yeah. No, I mean, this is reflected, I don't know, some of our listeners may be Quakers, but I've been to Quaker meetings and nothing, well, not all of them, but in many of them, nothing is said at all. Yes. You sit no. there and you wait for the light to enter you and then you may say something, but you may not. And you may sit there for an hour and nobody may say anything. Yeah, and you can imagine what they thought of that in the 17th century. Yeah, I can imagine. (laughs) (laughs) I can imagine. So James II comes to the throne. Yes. Uh, Is he opposed initially? I mean, do people say we can't have a Catholic on the the throne? That is not going to work. 
Well, that's an interesting question, and a lot of um, histories have started with the point that he wasn't opposed. Um, and um, I don't think that's completely true. So, um, yes, there, when he came to the throne, there was no immediate um, violent reaction against him, although um, he came to the throne, I think it was uh, February, and that summer in July, there was a, a rebellion led by the Duke of Monmouth, who brought um, just a handful of adventurers over from the Netherlands. And just at to, the same, I was going to say, just to get us on the chronology, that's 1683 or something? 1685, 1685. 1685, okay, sorry, yeah. And then at the same time, there was a simultaneous uh, uh, invasion of Scotland by the Earl of Argyll. Mm-hmm. But both of those rebellions were put down quite easily. Um, even though Monmouth managed to gather together quite a large army, they were not very skilled, and um, James's skilled troops came and sort of devastated them all at, 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 um, at, in the battles. So people have looked at that and said, well, you know, he was pretty popular when he started. Um, therefore, you know, it, it probably could have worked. England probably could have had a Catholic king. Um, but there was a lot of uneasiness, even at the very beginning of his reign, about what it meant to have a Catholic on the throne of England. And um, I think that uneasiness plays out later in, in his reign. And you know, even if he had pursued a different set of policies, I still wonder whether... He would have. I think he still would have had a lot of problems. Mm-hmm. Now, after the fact, of course, people, um, people that is the winners here, depict right. him as kind of a tyrant. Yeah, history uh, is written right, by but, the victors. But it doesn't seem that he was really a tyrant. He, you, you portray him as a sort of, I, I don't know, thoughtful is the right word, but you know, not somebody who was imperious. Right. Well, the imperiousness comes from a couple of really important episodes. And one of them is that um, he gets into a conflict with seven leading bishops of the Church of England and imprisons them for a week. Now, um, the way this episode has gotten written, it, you almost think that they were on the verge of losing their lives when they, they were sent to the Tower of London. That's actually the picture on the front of the book. The image mm-hmm. on the front of the book is the seven bishops being sent to the Tower of London. And at the time, um, this caused a huge outpouring, popular outpouring in their favor. People were worried, you know, what happens when, when you send people to the Tower of London is they, they, never, they never come out, right? Right. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> so this is the kind of episode that's been used to sort of depict him as a tyrant. You know, I, I have a chapter on this in my book where I talk about the episode and, you know, they were only sent to the Tower for a week. They actually dined on venison while they were there. <laughs> they had completely free movements all around the Tower. They weren't in, in a cell. Um, you know, they, they dined at the table of the, of the lieutenant of the tower and they had all kinds of visitors. In fact, people said there were so many coaches lined up outside the tower to meet with the bishops that it was like more crowded than outside of Whitehall Palace. And it was, it was the reason why they were sent there actually was a legal technicality that uh, I don't really need to go into all the details, but the only way to get a, a to jumpstart a, a prosecution and James wanted a quick trial was to actually either have them admit, uh, agree to submit a recognizance, a recognizance, sorry, which they weren't willing to do, or send them to prison. So um, they were only there for a week. But that's this is the sort of episode. Yeah, I I think James probably would have been wise not to prosecute the yeah. Archbishop of Canterbury and six yeah. other bishops. Yeah, yeah. Uh huh. Uh huh. But one of the things um, again at the center of your book is a particular reform that that James uh, b- begins, and uh, that is to. And I might have the terminology wrong, uh, but to repeal uh, the test acts. What, yes. were, what were the test acts? Sure. So over the course of the you know, century that had passed between um, the Reformation and um, 
James II coming to the throne, there were all kinds of laws that had been passed against Catholics, first under Elizabeth, and then under um, James I, and then, um, or James VI and I, and then um, those were, most of them were under, under those two. And those um, laws uh, um, designed, were designed to try and stamp out Catholicism in England. Um, there, were, there were priests who were executed in England right up until, I think the last one was 1683, Catholic priests. And um, the penal laws were mostly um, heavy fines that you had to pay if you didn't go to Church of England services. So those are the those are one that James wanted to to repeal those those laws against Catholicism. And the, also after the English Civil War in the period, the later 17th century, there were additional laws that were passed against nonconformists. Um, there there were a few nonconformists before the English Civil War, but it was really the English Civil War that starts. Um, well, it certainly starts the Quaker movement, but the Baptists get a lot bigger during the English Civil War, and then you, you have Presbyterians and Independents get also increasing in size. So these groups, after the Restoration in 1660, are repressed, and um, a lot, large numbers of them are sent to prison. You know, when James comes to the throne, there's 1,400 Quakers that are in prison. Mm-hmm. So um, those, those, that's one set of laws James wants to um, lift, so that um, all those major Christian groups will have religious liberty. And then there's the Test Acts. The Test Acts were passed in the 1670s, and um, th- there was there was two of them. And, and the first one said that you couldn't be you couldn't serve in public office if you were Catholic, and the second one said that you um, couldn't serve in Parliament if you were Catholic. And James also wanted to repeal the Test Acts, uh, which would have meant that Catholics, you know, there were a lot of there were not a lot of Catholics in England. Uh, in absolute numbers, it was maybe one percent of the English population, but there were quite a few Catholic peers. Catholicism had always had remained um, stronger among the the highest reaches of society. People who could afford to keep a priest, basically, and have a I don't know if you've ever been to a country house in England. They still have Catholic country houses where they have the old priest holes yeah, where the right. priest would have to hide yeah. um, when they came looking. So um, there were still quite a few Catholic lords, so they would have been readmitted to the House of Lords under his proposal. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So he has this idea. He wants to, he he wants to, he comes to the throne and he says, "Look, I want I want to release these people from prison who've been repressed, and and I want to repeal right. the Tussex." How does a, just to sort of set the scene for us? How does a monarch in England in the sixteen um, eighties go about getting these things done? Right. Well, that's a very good question. Um, he what he does is very controversial. He he, um, he, well, he has a sort of two-pronged approach. I mean, one way to get it done is to get Parliament to repeal the laws that they had passed. And um, he tries to do that. And I'll get to that later, because that's actually a really important part of the book. And there's a couple of chapters that focus just on that. But as a measure, a temporary measure, until he can get Parliament to repeal, he decides to use his own powers. Um, there's something, um, the royal prerogative includes something that's often called the dispensing power. So it was a power that Right from the medieval period, um, monarchs were, were believed to have or were, were given the sort of um, emergency powers in specific situations to dispense with laws. And James um, dispensed when he appointed, because he appointed Catholics to office. Whenever he appointed a Catholic, a Catholic to office, he included a clause saying, and I dispense them from having to follow the Test Act. They, so they're, they're free to become my um, officer, become my servant. Now, this was controversial because uh, you can see how far this could go. If, if James dispenses everyone from the Test Act, which he effectively ends up doing, that isn't really a dispensing power anymore. It's not about individuals. It's about actually um, 
overturning a law without having Parliament repeal it. Mm-hmm. And that, that gets called the suspending power, when, when laws get completely suspended. And pretty much, um, there, there's a law case that, that uh, Godden versus Hales, which, which, is, which agrees in 1686 that James does have a dispensing power, but even, even James's favorite judges, and he actually replaces half the judges before that ruling to, um, in order to re- achieve a favor- favorable verdict, even James's favorite judges aren't willing to go as far as endorsing a suspending power. And then after the revolution, they, they, the Declaration of Rights um, eliminates the suspending power. So that's what's really controversial. And he does this in, in 1687. He passes a Declaration for Liberty of Conscience. He, he proclaims it, that um, the penal laws are suspended and the test acts are no longer in force. And that causes a lot of unease about um, whether James is going to be undermining Parliament in all kinds of other ways as well. Even though he himself says, uh, this is only limited, it's only for a limited amount of time, and it's only directed at um, very discriminatory laws. And I wouldn't do this to people's state property rights, for example. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's what he does. And then the second prong um, is that he, he wants Parliament to repeal the laws, and um, he starts to rally a kind of political movement that because um, the House of Commons is elected, um, there's, you know, a 200 uh, local constituencies or boroughs that elect most of the members and then the other 80 or so members are, are elected by the counties. And then there's the Welsh members. Um, so the majority of members are elected from very small constituencies. And I think uh, at one point in the book, I calculated that if you won all the constituencies with fewer than 200 members, you could actually win a majority in the House of Commons. Mm-hmm. So he has a lot of powers as king to influence those constituencies because they all get their rights from him. Their charters, just like colonial charters, he's given charters to all these towns. Well, not him himself, but his predecessors. And he has the right to call them back in and reissue them if he wants to. And he can uh, appoint new people as mayors and aldermen. And in some places, it's only the mayors and aldermen who have the right to vote. In other places, uh, the freemen have the right to vote as well. But the freemen are chosen by the mayors and aldermen. So <laughs> none of this is complete uh, democracy. And um, the hope is, his hope is that by manipulating these constituencies, especially by bringing Catholics into, into power and Quakers, Quakers take um, office in some of these boroughs as well, and Baptists and Congregationalists, um, that he can assemble a kind of electoral, it's obviously not a majority of the people, but a majority in the constituencies that will then be willing to repeal the penal laws and test acts. And he spends the last 18 months of his reign focusing on this policy of trying to get a repeal parliament, which never actually happens because William of Orange invades first. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. So we need to get that. So I was going to say, so he pursues. Uh, this doesn't sound very high-handed. He pursues a legislative strategy, right? Right. Yeah, he, yeah. he gets his hands dirty. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Right. So he does this. So uh, how is it uh, received? I mean, does it does he does he make progress in this? Does it look like it's going to come off? Right. So um, I did a lot of counting. In my book. <laughs> I bet you did. <laughs> and I think it's important to count. Actually, um, you know. I think one of the great weaknesses of a lot of historical writing is we are really vulnerable, I think, to, to cherry-picking our examples and or that accusation that we've cherry-picked our examples and to only choose the um, examples that fit our argument 
And I think, you know, counting, as long as it's accompanied, I know numbers can be used, <laughs> fiddled with as well, but as long as it's accompanied with, with sort of an intellectual honesty, it can help to counteract that. So I tried to keep myself honest by counting. And by also, I decided I wasn't going to do a sample of Burroughs. I wanted to do all of them. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, there's the, that's the historian in all of us right there. Yeah. So... I worried if I did a sample that immediately the folks would be on, did I choose a representative sample? Right. What did I leave out? And also I had this three years of cash from the Canadian <laughs> government burning a hole in my pocket. Right. <laughs> and at a certain point, maybe it, it became just a kind of obsession yeah. <laughs> visiting as many archives as I possibly could. But I did, I found so many things along the way that I would get, I, I just felt that the most obscure archives, you know, if I could get to the Isle of Wight record office, <laughs> that there would be this treasure trove of materials. Um, and I did go there and there, there was, there was a little bit there, but, um, in some of the more obscure record offices, I did find a lot of interesting stuff. England, by the way, has a fabulous system of local archives. It, it is wonderful. There, every county has its own record offices. There's, and sometimes there's multiple record offices in each county. Now, the people who go use them are often um, genealogists. I mean, family historians who want to learn about the history of their own family. But mm -hmm. you sort of piggyback on that as a as a historian and, and can uh, leverage this archive network. Which you know, there's amazing manuscript collections in in the most um, tiny obscure places, Great Grimsby. You know, the <laughs> places you've never even heard of. Mm -hmm. So um, I counted. I went. And tried to survey all the boroughs. There's 205 of them. You know, not all the records survive. But, um, and um, not all of them were actually regulated, as it's called by James. He only regulated about, I think, 107 of them. So I focused on the ones that James um, tried to manipulate in this way to see if he had any success. And um, I... I, I, you know, I kept myself honest by counting, and I found that there were a lot of places where this strategy failed, and he wasn't able to find um, local agents who were willing to do what he want, wanted him to do. Um, but I found a number of really important cities, um, you know, Exeter, Cambridge, Canterbury, where, where he did get these uh, local organizations to rally together on behalf of the repeal cause. And um, at some point in my research, I decided that I needed a name for these people, and I started looking around to see, and I, I ended up calling them Repealers, and that's the name in the title, the Repealers and the Glorious Revolution. So they do take over. It's not a majority of councils, though, and this is where I was keeping myself intellectually honest, I think. It, in the end, I only found 27 Repealer boroughs, and out of, so out of 205, I think even if the elections were held, which they weren't in most places in the fall of 1688 because the invasion happened of William of Orange, even if they had been held, I don't think that James would have succeeded. Mm -hmm. So, but mm -hmm. still, this movement I think is important. It changed the way people thought about James, it, and it changed the calculations people were making about about the future and what and what to do and which side to support. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the repealers don't have a name for themselves at the time. No, no, and that's partly I think why people haven't talked about them as much. Right. You know, historians had to come up with a name for these people, and the name that they came up with. Um, this is from an article in the 1960s, and it's been used widely ever since, was Whig collaborators. Whig collaborators. Whig collaborators. And Whig being, referring to one of the two major political parties at the time. There right. were the Tories and the Whigs. The Whigs um, uh, were usually more in support of, of religious toleration than the Tories were. The Tories are often the, you know, seen as the high church Anglican party. Mm -hmm. and the, the Whigs are the party of nonconformists and, and the low church. Um, 
and the latitudinarians. So Whig collaborators, you know, the word collaborator, I, <laughs> I'm not sure about. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, people have noted that it's, it, you're, you're already taking a stand right. when you call them Whig collaborators. You're, it's, it sounds like Vichy France, you know. Yes, yeah. And if, but if you think James is a tyrant, then it, you have to wonder, why would anyone support a tyrant? Well, they must have done it because he was buying them off somehow. Right. And so that's the way people have seen the, and I, so I decided to discard this term Whig collaborators. By the way, there, I mean, there's been uneasiness about this term. And in the past um, 20 years or so, since a historian at Cambridge, Mark Goldie, challenged the term, people have kept using it, but now they use it in quotation marks. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, right. Whig collaborators in quotation marks, which I don't, sure. I think doesn't yeah. really remove the sting. Yeah, <laughs> you know? right. yeah, not really. So I had to come up with a word for them. Now, they don't have a word for themselves. That's, so that makes it hard. And, um, I mean, they call themselves, you know, we are devoted to liberty of conscience. But I couldn't write a whole book about the people who are devoted to liberty of conscience. Yeah, that's, that's awkward. <laughs> Definitely awkward. So they don't end up uh, solidifying or gelling into what we might call something like a party or a proto-party. But uh, as you point out in the book, there is a kind of organized opposition against them. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So um, the reaction to repeal in my argument, leads to the revolution. So, uh, you know, the revolution of 1688 or the Glorious Revolution or whatever you want to call it, I, I prefer Glorious Revolution just because it, it, it sounds better. <laughs> I just, it's like, I don't, I'm not saying it's a Glorious Revolution. I just think that it, it, you don't want to discard a, a cool term that um, yeah, it gives your field some prominence. And I think, especially Revolution of 1688 to 89 is, is quite a mouthful to mm-hmm. swallow. So let's call it the Glorious Revolution. Well, so a lot of people at the time said that the aim of the opposition was not to cause a revolution, in fact, but rather to stop one. It was to stop what James was doing in James's revolution. And, um, you know, James is talking, what he does in, with his Declaration for Liberty of Conscience, 1687, and what he wants Parliament to do is a toleration that will embrace all of the major Christian groups, including Catholics. And he offers toleration to Jews that are resident in London. Um, and that's actually a much wider toleration than anything that gets enacted after, you know, there's the Act of Toleration in 1689, but that doesn't encompass Catholics. So um, that's part of my argument that James was overthrown um, in, because he was too liberal, you know, in, in offering toleration to Catholics. And um, 1688 is the kind of counter-revolution against this radical maneuver that the repealers and James are trying to do together. Mm-hmm. So... Um, yeah, and then there's William's invasion. Which we haven't, and so how we does the opposition form exactly, and how is it related to William's invasion? So the opposition um, starts to form in, I, this is something I argue in, in, my, in, my, in, the, in the opening to my book. Um, it starts to form in part because James isn't actually repressing people very much in 1688. Yeah, you point out he lets a bunch of people out of jail. He lets the people, a bunch of people out of jail. He's got two general pardons, one in 1686 and one in 1688. Um, he's trying to persuade people to join the repeal campaign. And if he's simultaneously um, cracking down or repressing all the Anglicans or a large number of Anglicans, that's going to make it hard for him to um, succeed in persuading people to join the repeal campaign. So um, that allows an opposition to form this sort of moment where a lot of people, a lot of Anglicans are feeling very repressed. They, they're feeling that things are being taken away from, from them, that they always had as their own. Um, you know, these local 
um, boroughs. The mayors used to be Anglican, and now a lot of them aren't. Um, Cambridge colleges, Oxford colleges, James interferes with them. Most famously, Maudlin College, Oxford, gets taken over by Catholics. Um, James ejects the Anglican fellows Mm -hmm. for refusing to accept his nomination of a Catholic as um, head of the college. So things are being taken away from the Anglicans, and um, they're pretty upset about that. So um, they feel repressed in 1688. But I, I, the point I want to make in the book is that actually there's not a lot of actual repression going on because James isn't throwing a lot of people in prison. Even when he finds out that the invasion is happening, he doesn't throw a lot of people in prison. Um, he, and so I think it's this combination of a widespread feeling of grievance of being repressed but not actually being repressed that allows the opposition to form. And uh, it happens partly through this episode of the seven bishops that I mentioned before. Um, it's interesting that you have the Anglican clergy kind of forming the vanguard of this, um, what well, we could call the Anglican revolution. It's been called that um, because they're usually, they're these are the ones who are always preaching, you know, peace and order and good government and, and follow the king and obey the king. So they, they have to completely reverse on that. And they refuse to, he, he, passes an order um, commanding all of them to read the Declaration of Liberty Conscience from their pulpits, um, and most of them refuse to do that in May and June 1688. So th- this is a kind of widespread movement. It's not a violent resistance, but it's sort of, you know, refusal to, uh, sort of passive refusal to go along with what James is doing, and then all the attention is being focused towards the fall parliament that, uh, you know, the Anglicans want to make sure that that is stocked with, with people who are opposed to repeal and not with repealers. So that's how it starts. But then there is a revolutionary movement, uh, an active um, you know, taking up of arms that's, that starts emerging as well. In the summer of 1688, um, there's secret meetings, um, including by some of, um, some of the leaders in the army, in James's army. And um, they send a message to, some, some of these leaders send a message to William inviting him. And that's the they're called the Immortal Seven. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's, well, you again, got great not, names. You got great not names the in most, history. Yeah. Not the most neutral of terms, no, again. Really. It's, it's, no. it's a very juicy term, so I like using yeah. it. And the Immortal Seven yeah. who helped to cause the glorious revolution. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, this armed, um, what is really an armed insurrection gains momentum, and uh, James is uh, overthrown. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, William of Orange comes. Yes. Takes the throne. Yeah, uh, but what you argue in the book is is that what James had done, uh, it it uh, it has a life after he is gone, right? So, could you yeah. talk a little bit about that? Sure, absolutely. Um, so, I mean, in, a, in one way, one way you could think about this is to see it as a kind of missed opportunity that um, if James had succeeded, um, that things could have been very different. Um, the subsequent history, especially if you think about Ireland. Um, you know, if Protestant England had agreed to tolerate Catholics under James, I think that would have had really profound effects in Ireland. You can imagine a more balanced settlement in Ireland instead of the, you know, Protestant ascendancy of the 18th century, which leads eventually to, um, you know, Irish revolts of all kinds. Um, so you can see that as a missed opportunity, but um, it does change things, what James does. And... Um, that's why the book has kind of got a positive title, Making Toleration, because toleration is passed in 1689 when, um, when Parliament um, is, is called into being by William, and um, 
they decide to uh, pass a bill that will um, give religious liberty to, um, not to Catholics, but to, to Quakers and Baptists and Presbyterians and Congregationalists. And uh, not to Sassinians either. You have to be a Trinitarian um, Protestant to get toleration under this bill. And um, it doesn't extend to having the right to serve in public office. Um, Baptists and Quakers still can't serve in public office in the 18th century. But um, it, it allows them to worship freely, and they're not going to be sent to prison for, uh, for gathering together in worship. And this has really important effects, um, especially on the development of the British Empire in, into the 18th century. Um, it becomes easier to incorporate different uh, religious groups in the empire. It's not just Anglicans, um, you know, the Congregationalists in New England and Quakers in Pennsylvania can be seen as as um, full full citizens. Um, and uh, eventually, um, Catholics get incorporated as well. Although it, it takes um, you know another century or so for that to start happening. So it's it's a shift from a, the kind of um, winner take all policy that you see at the end of the Civil War when um, the restoration happens, the Anglicans are back in charge and they, and they, you know, they repress everyone who isn't an Anglican. And instead there's a, uh, uh, there's a fear really that um, if they don't offer uh, toleration to Quakers and Baptists and Congregationalists and Presbyterians, that they're going to end up becoming Jacobites. And Jacobite is the term for the people who continue to support James after he's exiled to France. Mm-hmm. So they have to keep them on side. And one of the reasons they're afraid that they might become Jacobite is that a lot of them did support the repeal movement under James. So they're aware of this recent history, and they're trying to make sure that, that something like that doesn't happen again, where, where you have Quakers and Catholics joining together in an alliance. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Did anybody, I, I guess one question that occurs to me, did anybody go to James and say, well, you know, you can't get everything you want, but you might be able to get a lot of what you want. Here, how about this okay. compromise? Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, that's, a, that's a position that a lot of historians have taken, actually, that in a sense, James mishandled the whole thing. And, you know, what he was faced with, really, throughout his reign, and even before he came to the throne, we could call a conspiracy theory. Uh, um, it's often the lingo we use, the term we use for it is, in, as British historians, is anti-popery. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's anti-Catholicism, but it's it's uh, it's it's sort of the anti popery has this connotation of uh, opposition to a Catholic plot to take over England, mm-hmm. and this was a really common theme a position in among Protestants in in seventeenth century England that the Catholics are going to try and take over, even though they were only one percent of the population. You know that they would have, um, you know, because France is Catholic and Spain is Catholic and um, uh, the majority of people in Europe are Catholic that. Um, Foreign Catholics would get involved, and uh, you know, a, a king like James might invite a foreign Catholic army into England to destroy the Protestant faith. Mm-hmm. So this is what he's up against. He's up against a kind of conspiracy theory. And um, how do you fight that? Well, a lot of historians have said that the way you should fight a conspiracy theory, certainly in, they've said that what James should have done is abandon the more controversial parts of his agenda. And um, that would sort of... Um, help to assuage some of the fears if he had, for example, not appointed any Catholics to office, to government, and employed only Protestants, and if he had accepted that Catholics would remain permanently barred from government, and maybe even if he had 
prevented Catholics from opening churches and instead only allowed them to worship in their own homes. Then he could have perhaps gotten a kind of toleration for private Catholic worship and not for anything else. Mm-hmm. And that would have not, that wouldn't have inflamed anti-popery as much. Um, and that's how you deal with the conspiracy theory. I'm, you know, I'm a little bit skeptical that this would have worked actually, because I think it underrates the power of this conspiracy theory. Mm-hmm. Um, in Charles II's reign, even when he was ostensibly an Anglican, there was a huge outpouring of anti-popery. It's called the Popish Plot. Mm-hmm. In the late 1670s, that's all anyone could talk about in, in British politics was the fear that the Catholics were going to take over. It was a huge frenzy. And um, he, was an, he was an Anglican. <laughs> he, wasn't, right. he wasn't employing... He agreed to the Test Acts, Charles II. He wasn't employing Catholic ministers. Right. So I think... Even if James had done absolutely nothing to help Catholics, if he had a Catholic, if he had a son that would look like he would be raised Catholic, which is what happens in June 1688, um, his wife um, has, has a child, a baby boy, um, that alone, I think, would have been enough to set off a kind of anti-popish fear. Um, and at the time, there were a lot of people, at the time of that birth, there were a lot of conspiracy theories about the birth. I don't know if you've ever heard of these conspiracy theories, no, but um, a lot of people at the time said that um, the queen, Mary of Modena, had been faking the pregnancy right from the start. She'd just been using pillows <laughs> under as a, to give a larger and larger belly. And whenever anyone tried <laughs> to touch her belly, she would always say, I am the queen. What are you doing? <laughs> you can't touch my belly. And then, now this is the thing. Uh, for the conspiracy theory to work, it has to get very conspiratorial because... There were, I think there were around 70 people in the room yeah. <laughs> when the birth right. happened. These were not private occasions. Yeah. And, um, but, you know, the, the, the conspiracy theory says that the Protestants were too far away from the bed to really see what was happening. And there were only the, the queens, she was Catholic herself. She was an Italian princess. This is James's second wife, um, Mary of Modena. And so only her Italian ladies-in-waiting were close enough to see what was really going on. And they smuggled in a baby. <laughs> In a warming pan, which yeah. is a pan used to warm the bed. Of course they And did. then sort of open the lid and ta-da, yeah. out springs the baby boy. And that's how, why you can't trust James, because he's trying to disinherit. Um, actually, the, the heir to the throne was Mary, uh-huh. um, who was married to William, which is William and Mary. When, right. you know, the, we, we all know about William and Mary. Right. So, but because of the rules of primogeniture, uh, if you have a son, it immediately disinherits the daughter, no matter how mm-hmm. old she is. Mm-hmm. So that's the kind of conspiracy theory yeah. that, that James is fighting. That's pretty serious. It kind of reminds me of anti-communism in the United States in the 1950s. You know, they're everywhere. Yeah. yeah. So I guess one thing that I find curious, and again, this is from someone that knows not very much about um, British history, as I guess we're going to call it, is that, you know, there's this thing, Whig, the Whig conception of history, Herbert Butterfield, right? Everything right. tends toward liberty, blah, blah, blah. But it seems to me even in that conception of history, which you do find in the 18th and 19th century, uh, James II gets no cred. Am I right about that? I mean, he's not. Oh, absolutely. Like, you know, here we go. No, he's, he's the great. Right, go ahead. Yeah, he's the great villain of the Whig interpretation of history. Yeah, but that seems to me all wrong then. Um, well, I, I would agree with you. I, <laughs> I, you know? I mean, I think, yeah, the Whig interpretation of history um, has been very popular. And I, I mean, I think it's been dissected pretty, pretty thoroughly, but it still continues to have a lot of, uh, a lot of popular sway. And, um, you know, Herbert Butterfield, the, the 1931, wrote um, The Whig Interpretation yeah, of History. I still right. teach that. I yeah, think it's, a, it's, a great book. I, it's amazing that this text is still it's readable, you know, it's a great book. 80 years later. Yeah. But, um, 
so, I mean, you can see why it, reading Butterfield, why people continue to use the Whig theory. Um, it's, it's an easy way of organizing the past and it has, you know, v- villains and heroes yeah. and it, it flatters us because it positions us as, you know, the pinnacle. Um, it, it, progress is leading up to us. Yeah. And I think most people who aren't professional historians, you know, I, 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 I know probably as much about 1688 as I do about 1988, right? But, yeah. you know, most people who aren't professional historians um, only have a limited amount of headspace right. <laughs> for history. Yeah. And you need, you need something simple. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can't admit all the complexity. I mean, my point is that the complex past is just as complex as, as the present. Mm-hmm. But it, it's, it's hard for people who aren't professional historians to, to see that, you know, in fact, in 1688, there were all these different camps. They all had different views, and um, there's a, a, a huge amount of diversity in public opinion. It wasn't that every English person thought the same thing. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, this narrative of James being the villain, um, well, it probably comes because he lost. You know, history is written right. by, by the victors. Right. Well, I mean, it's interesting in a way because, and I talk about this a lot on the show, is that we have these stories in our head, and we have to make the facts fit them. Right. And in this case... The Glorious Revolution is the thing that is the bearer of liberty and toleration. So there must have been something before it that the bearers of liberty fought against. And we need to find that person. And that person is James II. This happens all the time. You know, for example, even in contemporary politics, uh, I don't know, I just read this the other day. I don't know if it's true, but a lot of people were criticizing the Obama administration for not supporting, I don't know, aid in Africa or something. And they pointed out that it was, in fact, George Bush Right. sent huge amounts of aid to Africa. But, you know, that's far, like yeah, totally exactly. forgotten. Totally forgotten. That doesn't fit the George Bush image, right? Because right. we have to make things fit just right. So right. we have these sort of stereotypes and we're going to make things fit. And it seems to me that, uh, you know, and I'm not taking sides here or anything. I'm just saying that we have this tendency to, uh, I, I guess, sort of to adapt the facts to whatever story we have. And yeah. this is a good case of it. No, I was reading that the, when they opened the George Bush Presidential Library, uh, people were noticing that a large number of the exhibits were actually about the aid that that Bush had given to Africa, yeah, under, right. and especially with AIDS in Africa. And, you know, there, I can imagine it would cause maybe cognitive dissonance for yeah. some Democrats to go to the George right. Bush Library. It doesn't, doesn't fit. You know, you know good things. doesn't fit the and, story. <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. This happens all the time. So let me ask you this, though. Um, so uh, you're still a Canadian citizen, right? I am, yes. You are, right? You're a member of the Commonwealth, right? I am, yes. So can you start a campaign to rehabilitate James II as a member of the Commonwealth? Is there any Am I allowed to? I, th- I don't well, know. You're know? a member of the Commonwealth. You should be able to go and do something. I don't know. Rehabilitate. Have James II Day or something? I don't know. You know, there's still a Jacobite claimant. Well, it's not, that's not quite fair. He, the current, if you follow the line down, because that baby boy grew up. Yeah. That, in 1688 and had, and had children of his own. Right. And if you follow that, if you follow the correct line down, uh, where, what Jacobite see is the correct line, then the, the current king of England should be the, the Duke of Bavaria. Duke of Bavaria. <laughs> but yeah. Bring him he back. doesn't, he doesn't take the claim. He doesn't, he doesn't assert his claim when he yeah. meets with, with Queen Elizabeth. Right. So would you say that there's a kind of bifurcated, I don't know, twofold, I guess is a better way to put it, sort of reaction to what you're saying. On the one hand, I, do most professional historians say, yeah, we always have known that James, you know, he, he really wasn't, you know, this sort of retrograde tyrannical fellow. And then people and these sort of common people, I don't know, common people, that's the wrong word, but people that don't have very much headspace for history adhere to this old story about James being, you know, bad. I'm, no, I, I wouldn't say <laughs> that I've persuaded all professional historians. Okay. All right. <laughs> and yeah. I'm not sure that I will either. You know, there's been a lot of debate about 
James and his intentions and whether he was really sincere in what he was doing. Um, you know, was he, when he passed the Declaration of Liberty of Conscience, did he really mean it? Or was there another agenda um, to, to impose Catholicism in the end? And he was, this was sort of a way station on his way to that agenda. You can imagine that he would want to divide the Protestant nonconformists from the Anglicans mm-hmm. and tr- try and sort of um, seduce them over to his side. And then once he had gotten the test acts repealed, he could try and pack a parliament full of Catholics uh, once that was legal by using some of the same kind of um, shenanigans in the parliamentary boroughs that he had used to try and get the repealer parliament. Well, is there any evidence of that? Not direct evidence. See, that's part of the conspiracy right there. Yes. See how that works? (laughs) (laughs) But if you think that's true, and, you know, part of it's... Part of it's contextual because you're thinking, okay, what did other Catholic monarchs do? You know, Louis XIV at the time was oppressing the Protestants. You know, he, he revoked the Edict of Nantes. He sent the Dragonade. Right. Um, so it's to a lot of people, it doesn't seem plausible that a Catholic monarch in, in 7th century England could have been a proponent of liberty of conscience. Um, so if you believe that James wasn't sincere, then I don't think... Um, a lot, you know, I, I, I found, for example, a speech that James gave at Chester in 1687 where he argues that liberty of conscience should be a natural right and that uh, he has this sort of um, phrase about um, complexions that um, you, um, if there were a law made that all black men should be imprisoned, it would be unreasonable. And we should have as little reason to quarrel with other men for being of different opinions as for being of different complexions. Mm-hmm. So he's saying in this speech that belief is involuntary. You shouldn't be punished for something you can't change. You can't change your complexion. You can't change your beliefs. Mm-hmm. Um, so you shouldn't be punished for either. But if you think James is being insincere, then he was just being insincere in this speech too. Mm-hmm. So, and I tried actually, I tried quite hard in my book not to try and resolve the, all the ambiguities. I don't actually think we can know what James was thinking. Um, we don't have enough information. And even if we could look into his mind. I'm not sure that we all know what our motivations are. Right. We all have multiple overlapping motivations for sure. what we do. Sometimes, sometimes we're not even aware. Sometimes we're just following social norms. So I'm, I'm a little bit uneasy about the whole question of whether James was sincere or insincere. And I didn't take a very... I, I hope I didn't write a frustrating book for people because I didn't take a position. I didn't come down and say he was sincere or insincere. Um, I thought that it would be more interesting to not talk about that um, as much, and then look instead, sort of bracket that question, and then look at what, how people at the time responded to him, mm-hmm. and whether they thought he was sincere yeah. or insincere. Yeah. And you get a very diverse range of responses. There are some people who think he's being completely insincere and everything, and other people like William Penn, who actually, you know, get on his side and become friends with him and think that that he's he's really devoted to these causes. Mm-hmm. So that's is, there any way to, is there any way to answer this question about whether he was sincere? And I guess not. Well, um, I mean, every piece of evidence could be interpreted the same way, right? You know, any statement by James, actually, you could resolve it one way. You could see how you could show that James was insincere if you could find that letter where he says, actually, I don't believe any of this. Mm -hmm. It's hard to resolve it in the direction of James's sincerity because any statement of, I truly believe this, could be another statement of of where he's Mm -hmm. just pretending. But. Mm That letter's never turned up where right. he says, I'm just, I'm just faking. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. But I don't know that we'll ever be able to resolve it. And, you know, sometimes the more you study something, the more uncertain you become about it. (laughs) Right. Well, that's right. I mean, that's that's exactly right. For some reason, this is reminding me of a Saturday Night Live skit about Ronald Reagan. This was a long time ago, but it shows Ronald Reagan kind of as a doddering old man pre-Alzheimer's or sort of in the fit of Alzheimer's. He can't do anything. He takes pictures with people. And then he goes actually behind the scenes, behind the, into another room in the Oval Office, and he's picking up the phone and speaking in Arabic, and he was like, basically pulling all the strings, he just like knows everything, and he goes back out to the front office, he's this doddering old man again, you know, so. Yeah, we, we love, we love these conspiracy theories, yeah. I mean, they haven't gone away, we still like to think that there might be something going on behind the scenes, and yeah. uh, it, 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 it's very exciting to yeah, think it is. No, that. it's absolutely, yeah. it absolutely is. Well, um, Scott, we've kind of run out of time. We've taken a lot of your time today, and I really appreciate you uh, 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 taking the time to speak with us. Um, let me ask you our traditional final question on the New Books Network, and that is, uh, what are you working on now? So uh, the book is out, um, and I am starting a new project, as people tend to do. And um, I'm, I've decided I'm going to move ahead into the next period, um, the period after the revolution, and look at um, the way um, William governed, and also um, Anne, who took the throne after him, and um, the way uh, sort of religious ideologies and, and, and prejudices continued to play out in the period immediately following the revolution. And I want to compare that with France. I... I I did some work in the French archives for my first book. I, I found it really interesting. Um, I want to um, do more work on Louis XIV and look at how, um, maybe draw some comparisons between how Protestants were treated uh, in Louis XIV's France and how um, Catholics were treated in under William and Mary and under Anne in, in England. And, um, you know, this is a time in the 1690s um, where where states are getting a lot more powerful and William's state is much more powerful than James II's state was, you know, they, they've expanded the military. They're in a, he's locked in war with Louis XIV. And, um, I'm, I'm sort of interested in how state formation could depend on, on, um, the exclusion of religious minorities. You know, he, part of the way that he gets taxes through parliament, um, William is by saying, you know, we have to fight off the, the, you know, the Catholic threat. Mm-hmm. And um, so religious-based fears could have, I think, a lot to do with um, the kinds of conflicts that you're still seeing at, at the sort of the dawn of the Age of Enlightenment. So I'm not presenting it as the dawn of the Age of Enlightenment. I'm <laughs> right. Yeah, right. Uh, any chance you can get one of those all-expenses-paid three-year Canadian fellowships for that one? If only. Wow. Yeah. Can you get one you know, for this, me, maybe? Or <laughs> It's amazing. Some things, some things you can only do in graduate school. Yeah, You'll never right. wash dishes again. No, I, won't. <laughs> I probably won't ever wash dishes for a living again. Yeah, I don't really miss it. But anyway, um, I want to thank everybody for listening to this podcast, but I especially want to thank Scott Sowerby today. We've been talking about his book, Making Toleration, The Repeaters, and The Glorious Revolution. Scott, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you so much, Marshall. I okay. appreciate it. All right. Bye-bye.